Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is episode two of the Checklist Manifesto with your host, me, Troy Hollings, and our author, Dr. G. For this episode, we've got a drinking game. Every time I say the word checklist, take a shot. But I'm not liable because that's a bad decision. So last episode, episode one, we talked about checklist, 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 fuck yeah! And we finished off talking about the concept of a master builder. Because for most of modern history, the way a building would go up was you'd hire a master builder. And these builders would oversee the whole project from start to finish, from, br- from brick to bathroom. But by the middle 1900s, master builders were dead and gone because the variety and complexity of each individual part of the construction process had progressed and overwhelmed the abilities of any one individual. So no matter how good some master builder was, he just never could be good enough to do the, to you know do the electrical in a fucking football stadium, and then also do the concrete, and then also construct you know one of the little hats that they wear so that you can you can open it when when the sun is out. You know, no master builder could do all the skills. And so the first division of labor, you know, architecture and engineering split from each other. So, you know, some people would just focus on the plans. Some people focus on, on doing it. Uh, then, you know, piece by piece, each component became further specialized and broke off until there were architects with a subspecialty. You know, builders who were, who were tower crane contractors, all the way to builders who were frame carpenters. In short... It looked a lot like medicine or any other field nowadays. Some might even say the way. Yet we in medicine continue to exist in a system created in the master builder era. You know, a system in which a lone master physician with a prescription pad, a hard dick and fire in his eyes can save the world. We've been slow to adapt to the fact that at least a third of the patients that come through our system have at least 10 specialists actively interacting in their care as they reach the end of their lives. So that's fucking crazy. So he's saying that like, we've got this system that's set up like master builders, but now shit's so complex that like, we, you know, when people are at the end of their lives, so, you know, that's probably going to be the highest amount of medical care you receive. There's 10 different specialists who interact on your case. But the evidence of how slow we are to adapt is in front of us with the high incidence in which care is flawed, duplicated, or uncoordinated. In the construction business, Salvia, so if you remember from episode one, that is the the CEO of the engineering company that Dr. G walked into and was like, hey man, I saw your building. Can you talk to me about checklists? And they said yes. In the construction business, Salvia realized that there was no room for this type of error you know 
yeah, it's bad if a patient dies, but if you, you know, if you fuck up a football stadium and 30,000 people get crushed to death, yeah, it tends to drive the problem to the forefront of people's concerns. And years ago, the architects, the builders, the contractors, they just were forced to confront the fact that the master builder model just didn't work. So they abandoned it and they found a different way to get things right. And Salvia was actually really excited that um, someone finally cared. And so he invited Dr. G to one of his construction sites to take a look at how things were done. Uh, Dr. G actually shows up, and I kid you not, in a damn Brooks Brothers blazer and penny loafers because people actually fucking wear clothes like that apparently. And Salvia laughs in his fucking face and says, the first thing I need to teach you is how to wear correct shoes to a construction site. So Dr. G kind of like makes a mental note that he's going to kill Salvia one day, but but he, he like, he brushes it off. So he gets introduced to the project executive who's in charge of the project on any, on any given day. And, you know, on the average day has anywhere from 200 to 500 people working on his project at once. Dr. G says the volume of knowledge and complexity he had to manage was as intense as any complexity I've had to manage in the medical field. O'Sullivan is his name, and O'Sullivan, the project executive, tried to explain how he manages all this shit, but Dr. G was kind of like a little too stupid, so um, O'Sullivan was like, oh, oh come, come, come with me, little buddy, come on. And so he, so he brought Dr. G to the battle room on the walls in big butcher block paper hung to what dr g says was his surprise checklist son o'sullivan explained the construction schedule as i peered close i saw line by line day by day listing of every building task that needed to be completed on what day and in what order the 15th floor concrete needed to be poured on the 13th of the month etc etc there was color coding with red highlighting critical steps that had to be done before other steps could be completed. As each task was finished, a project manager would put a check mark in the computer which updated the master schedule. Since every building is a new creature, every checklist is different. It's drawn up by a group of people representing the 16 building trades. Then the checklist is sent to all the subcontractors so they can double check if anything was missed. Hey guys, we're going to need four days to do the electric wiring. This is the plan, but you know, I'm going to need, I'm going to need four days where you can't be doing drywall. Is that okay? The results are remarkable. A day by day set of instructions that rips the knowledge of a thousand disparate people into one fucking plan and ensures that everything gets done correctly and on time. It's the wisdom of crowds, baby. And then Dr. G just kind of like describes how the buildings are built like layer upon layer with mission critical steps getting done before moving on to others. Whatever. The whole intricate process was astounding to behold. Most astounding because Dr. G didn't think anyone but doctors could do a good job at anything. Uh, when they were doing the tour and they got to the top, Dr. G actually noticed some water uh, and, you know, and, and, the t and one of the floors was tilting. And so he asked O'Sullivan, was like, hey, man, that doesn't look normal. And O'Sullivan's like, yeah, you know, variances do occur. We all looked at it, though. We're thinking it's going to fix itself. 
and, and Dr. G just marvels to himself, man, this is true complexity. So when they get down off the skyscraper and, you know, Dr. G's asshole finally relaxed because he just hated heights. He, he shared that with us. Um, he asked the builders, how, how do they deal with issues like that? Um, you know, so issues like that being you've got the sloping floor where water's collecting and, the, you know, what's the solution? Because in the medical field, Dr. G says the solution would be to give the individual specialist latitude to decide what to do. You know, so in this case, it would be O'Sullivan, the project executive, who would just make the decision. But O'Sullivan says, hey, that there's a flaw in that plan. You know, there's 16 trades. If we don't, if we don't have a true master builder, me just making a fucking decision, that's a disaster. You know, it would it would produce a cacophony of incompatible decisions and overlooked errors. You know, you you get a fucking building that doesn't stand up straight. So what do you do? Dr. G said. That's when O'Sullivan showed me another giant butcher block sheet of paper. It was another checklist, but this one was labeled submittal schedule. It didn't list out construction tasks, but communication tasks. For the way the project managers dealt with the unexpected and uncertain was to make sure that the experts spoke to each other on X day regarding Y process. Jesus Christ, that's insane. That's great. That, that, uh, this, that is why this book squirreled its way as a life-changing book of my mind. You know, the, the experts could make their individual judgments, but they had to do so as part of a team taking the whole into account. And so it's basically just forced the, the master electrician to talk to the concrete guy, to talk to the roof guy and confirm like, hey, uh, this floor is sloping. Before we go to any more steps, let's all look at it. You know, and, and, and everything was like this. You know, they had to talk to talk about the elevators by the 15th, about the steel beam fireproofing by the 25th. And it turns out that um, they actually talked about the sloping floor a week before Dr. G visited. The owners and contractors all agreed that it was reasonable to expect the floor to level out. Cleanup was arranged for the water, the schedule slightly adjusted, and everybody signed off. In the face of the unknown, there's always a nagging uncertainty about whether things will turn out okay. They didn't believe in the wisdom of a single individual or the experience of a single master engineer. They believed in the power of communication, of letting a bunch of experts get together and trusting they would solve the problem. Man is fallible, but many men are less so. What the fuck? Yes, Dr. G, I agree. And so when Dr. G got back to Salvia's office, uh, Salvia shared with him that the major advance in construction science over the last couple decades has been the perfection of tracking and communication. Only now did I understand this miracle, Dr. G said. This podcast is sponsored by Scotch. The biggest cause of error in this business, Salvia says, is lack of communication. You know, and this, and this checklist hasn't been 100% perfect. And, and when he's saying this checklist, he's talking about like the fucking communication, the, the building planning, you know, day by day by day schedule. But its record has been uncanny. So apparently there's 5 million 
commercial buildings in use right now. They built 70,000 new commercial buildings and a million new homes per year. And even with all of that construction, the building failure rate is ridiculously low. And so building failure would be like, you know, house collapses, everybody dies. It's about 20 per year. So that's a 0.00002% failure rate. As Joe Salvia explained to me, Dr. G says, although the buildings are more complex and sophisticated than ever in history, with higher standards expected for everything from earthquake proofing to energy efficiency, those buildings take a third less time to build than when he started his career. In other words, the checklists work. The idea. There's a particular powerful aspect to the building industry solution, and it's that it gives the people the power. In response to risk, authorities usually tend to centralize power. You know, that's that's usually what checklists are about. You know, you get some fucking checklist from corporate, like, oh, yeah, you fill out these 10 things. And you're like, this is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever seen. But these checklists, you know, the building checklists were set up entirely different. The philosophy is that you push the power of decision making out to the periphery and away from the center. You give people the ability to adapt based on their experience and expertise. All that you ask is that they talk to each other and take responsibility. That is what works. And as the great Lord Jocko would say, that's decentralized command, son. Even the inspectors. You know, it's, it, those, those buildings are so complicated that you know, they can't inspect every single corner for proper aerodynamic angle, whatever. So instead, they, you know, they delegate power to the builders and have the builders sign affidavits saying like, hey, I promise that I, I stand by this. And O'Sullivan has a crazy quote. He says, inspectors have more trouble from a two-room addition from a do-it-yourselfer than they do from projects like ours. So he's saying that on the whole, you know, some random motherfucker adding two extra rooms to their house causes building inspectors so much more headache than an 80-story skyscraper from this motherfucker's company. Yeah. And so, you know, these ideas are just bouncing around in Dr. G's head. He's like, God damn it, I see it everywhere. I see it everywhere. And he brings about, he brings up Hurricane Katrina. And so, Hurricane Katrina, horrible. The New Orleans was fucking super flooded. The government response was horrible because they tried to stick to their command and control system even in the face of it not working. You know, so there's supposed to be some you know, damn signal that came down that told everybody what to do, but like, oops, nobody has power. So no one got the signal. Dr. G says the problem wasn't a lack of sympathy from the people on the top. It was a lack of understanding. In the face of an extraordinarily complicated problem, power needed to be pushed out of the center as far as possible you know and this reminds me of basic economics it's like that's why the market works better in some situations because you know you're letting decentralized people you're you're letting me and my aunt trade eggs you know i'm going to be able to decide how to do that transaction so much better than some damn government centralized planner and I'm not saying, you know, we shouldn't have a fucking government, but whatever. Um, and 
you know, when interviewed after Katrina, some person in the government was like, you know, it was just the perfect storm. It was a disaster to end all disasters. But Dr. G coldly fucking says, that's not an explanation. That's simply the definition of a complex problem. But luckily for us, our American hero, Walmart, responded more effectively than the government. Because at the same time, you know, the government was waiting on their fucking, oh, I don't have the signal. Walmart briefed their employees. And I mean, this almost brings a tear to my eye. Lee Scott, the CEO, said, this company will respond to the level of this disaster, which means hard as fuck because the level of the disaster was horrible. He's quoted as saying, a lot of you are going to have to make decisions above your level. Make the best decision that you can with the information available to you at the time. And above all else, do the right thing. This edict was passed down to store managers. Bro, that's like the most that's like the most heroic thing I've ever heard, dude. Like only somewhat joking, but because once the horror of what happened started to become evident, you know, these Walmart store managers, the focus shifted from like, oh God, we need to reopen our store to oh my God. This is a, you know, this is a disaster that happens once every 200 years. What the fuck can we do to help these people? And so Walmart store managers using that edict jumped into action. They started giving out diapers, ice, life-saving goods to people where, where FEMA still hadn't figured out how to requisition supplies. These fucking Walmart store managers were creating a paper slip credit system for first responders. They provided them with food, sleeping bags, toiletries. The, the assistant manager of one store that was flooded with like 30 feet of water, she, she ran a bulldozer through her store. She got any items she could salvage and then gave them away in the parking lot. And when she was told that a local pharmacy was running out of drugs, she went back into that snake-infested dark death trap and broke into the store's pharmacy, and senior management lauded her as a hero. Now that, my friends, is a kuse mono. They set up three mobile pharmacies in the city. They saved the day. You know, in summary, they, in summary, they just took fucking scalps. And most prominently, within two days... Walmart logistics teams figured out how to get tractor trailers of food, water, and supplies past roadblocks and into the city. And they they supplied food, water, and medicine a day before the government. They even supplied the National Guard with food. It's the market, baby. And the real lesson here is that under conditions of true complexity where the knowledge exceeds that of any individual and uncertainty reigns, efforts to dictate from the center will fail. And, you know, if if we're taking a step back, you know, the whole reason that Dr. G is kind of thinking about all this stuff is because he's trying to solve this huge fucking problem where, you know, it's it's like we've got a bunch of master builders in medicine and half the time, you know, 20% of the time, a large fucking percentage of the time, it's so complex that no human being can or should be expected to just know it all. You know, 
No one's mad at the master builder when he isn't able to rewire the Eiffel Tower with electricity in a day. But this is the understanding that the skyscraper industry had. Moreover, they have been remarkably able to codify this into a simple checklist. You know, they made the management of complexity routine. You know, they, they apply a set of checks to ensure the stupid but critical stuff is not overlooked and then another check to make sure people coordinate and accept responsibility. And Dr. G says he, he came away from Katrina in the builders meeting with a kind of theory. In situations of extreme complexity, not only are checklists a help, they are required. And so he talks about some shitty metal band that's not a metal band, Van Halen, you know, they sound like smooth jazz to me, but apparently they use checklists. He has a friend who owns a restaurant, who uses checklists and I'm being kind of like a dick but um, you know the good point on the restaurant example is let's just say that you know you make her special so she she owns the restaurant and you work at the restaurant and you make her special creamed corn you make it 300 times and you, you just you think you have it down but but she says that is when people begin to slip they stop using the recipe and quality goes down and then he just prattles on about lobster and rich person stuff. There seemed to be no field where checklists wouldn't help. And as he realizes this, his mind opens. He looks up into the heavens and he sees, suspended on clouds with angels feeding them grapes, doctors. Maybe checklists could even help doctors. The first try. So Dr. G was just hanging out in his office doing shots and he gets a call from some lady at the World Health Organization. Who? The who? And she wanted to see if he could help organize a group of people to solve a small problem. He asked what it was. She said that officials were picking up indicators worldwide that the volume of surgery was increasing and a good portion of the surgery was so bad it couldn't be considered safe. So Dr. G responded well how do you plan to do that and she said we'll, we'll have a meeting and he said well how much money are you going to devote to this and she said uh, we don't have any money so he he politely declined and then she hit him with the stone cold fucking savage sales closing line oh i'm sorry I thought you were supposed to be some expert on patient safety. My bad. I agreed to help. So he started looking at this WHO data, 190-ish countries, and he saw that surgery was just fucking exploding. But outcomes were shitty, really shitty. Complication rates estimated between 3 to 17%. 7 million people disabled and 1 million people dead per year just from bad quality. That makes surgery on average more deadly than malaria or tuberculosis. But this was tough. You know, he, how do you fucking fix that? You know, it's not just like eradicating polio where you give some bitches a shot and their legs work again. You know, finding a way to reach every hospital in the world to help them with, with all types of surgery seemed absurd. So he met for two days with doctors, hospital executives, everybody associated with the, the who. And, you know, these were people from all over the world. You know, one guy 
was from Africa and you know he had three doctors in his hospital and none of them were actually trained surgeons but you know Dr. G says when someone comes in and they're bleeding out what do you do you help them or you try your best you know they figured trying to help was better than doing nothing and countless other examples and so Dr. G's like sitting there he's just he's just stewing like what the fuck did I get myself into? You know, I could have picked up a couple more shifts and bought myself another goddamn Porsche. Here I am, legit, actually trying to invent the wheel. And as these people, you know, are kind of brainstorming potential solutions, somebody suggested training programs. And there was just this collective groan because everybody knew, everybody knows that doctors get so much fucking training. And so, you know, maybe maybe it's guidebooks. But Dr. G, you know, he strolled the basement in the Who and he saw pallet after pallet of unused guidebooks. No one's used them. And he asked, so, he, you know, he's like trying to be open, open-minded. And so he asked a, a Who organizer, you know, if the Who had a guidebook on how to carry out global public health programs. And this is the best quote of the whole fucking series. She regarded me with a look one might give a toddler who is searching a dog's mouth to figure out what makes the barking noise. <laughs> now that is a fucking metaphor. So she just, you know, he's, he's like, hey, you know, I see you have a lot of guidebooks. Do you have a guidebook on like how we can roll out a public health endeavor? And she just looks at him like, the barking comes from inside the dog. He's like, well, clearly this bitch is not going to help me out at all. I'm going to just have to save the world on my own. So he starts thinking about successful public health programs. So smallpox, there's a, you know, we got the vaccines and everybody lived. Cholera, um, in, 19, in 1850, um, back in that day, you know, the, the traditional explanation of cholera was like, it's an evil air. But this guy was like, I don't know, man, this air seems pretty good. And so they traced the air back to a, <laughs> the air. They traced the, the sickness back to one specific well and the doctor's like listen guys what's the what's the risk let's just take the handle off so people stop using the damn well and if if it's good if you know if everybody's still fucking dying then we know it's the evil air but they took the handle off everybody lived well i mean i'm sure some people that drank the, the poopy water they they didn't live but stopped the pandemic figured out that cholera is spread by bacteria but Dr. G says those were all simple interventions if you think about it. So he, he's racking his fucking million pound brain and he starts thinking about one of his favorite public health victories. And it, it took place in Karachi, Pakistan. And so picture this. Picture a squalid city with maybe some you know buildings and normal city shit happening in the middle. But around the city... Four million people living in squatter set settlements. So I think four times the population of Indianapolis, just homeless, living in fucking, you know, Mad Max style tenements. All water is contaminated. Kids die young because basic stuff like treating diarrhea or coughs. Yeah, that doesn't happen. And there's corruption. You know, you go to you go to the police. They just they just take your fucking money. There's poverty. There's food shortages. But a young public health official, Stephen Lubby, had a damn idea. 
This bitch wanted to save the world. So he moved to Karachi. When he got there with his school teacher wife, he was shocked. He once told Dr. G, if they had the same sewage system that we had in Omaha, we could fix this easily. But that would take a long time and millions of dollars. So he was trying to look for low tech solutions. In this case, his solution was so simple, it seemed laughable to his other friends. You know, they, his other doctor friends, they, they moved the bushel of grapes out of their servants' hands. They got up from their gold lounge chairs and they laughed in his fucking face. What was the solution? Soap. It was soap. He negotiated with Procter & Gamble, some awesome giant company that everyone hates, who, um, you know, they had antibacterial soap. And they wanted to they wanted to prove its effectiveness. So it's like a new formula. And so the the intervention was get this specialized soap and then also just regular soap. So like as a control. And there you have to use this soap in six different situations. So like before you eat, when you shit, when you touch a baby, whatever. There's six different ones. And so on average, families got uh, three and a half bars of soap per week for a year. But the crazy fucking thing, and this is where Dr. G's pulling into the void, like maybe this has a solution, is instances of child diarrhea, pneumonia, and a bunch of other shit fell 50%. All hail the 80-20 principle. Soap was leverage. But it wasn't just soap. Soap was a behavior change vehicle. Because when they handed out the soap, they handed out six instructions too. But the crazy, crazy thing was that the average household actually had like two bars of soap per week before the study. They already had soap, but they weren't using it in all six of those cases. So this was as much a checklist study as it was a soap study. And Dr. G is wondering, could a checklist be the soap to our surgical problems? Another bitch made a surgery checklist and it was good. Okay, so there seemed to be some data to show that surgical checklists is good. Even with this, Dr. G says, I was skeptical. Yes, one hospital, so that bitch who just did the checklist shared it at the fucking conference. One hospital got one aspect of surgery care correct. But to get better outcomes across the spectrum, we needed a broader approach. And then some guy named Rick spoke up. His hospital had piloted a 21-item checklist. They tried to design it to handle the full spectrum of surgical issues that could come up. You know, for example, I don't know, he had staff confirm with each other like, hey, did you give the antibiotics? Is there blood available in case one of the doctors gets thirsty? Um, what? Uh, a bunch of other shit. The checklist even included a team briefing. It's like a little huddle where everybody needed to stop before the before the operation started and, and ask each other different shit. Like, hey, surgeon, how much blood do you expect the patient to lose? Hey, drug expert, how much drugs do we need? You know, Rick had never heard of the demise of the master builder system, but had intuitively gravitated to a similar solution a mix of task and communication checks. Because surgery has four main killers, infection, unsafe bleeding, anesthesia problems, and what can only be described as unexpected. 
you cut into the patient and a demon flies out and starts snapping fucking necks. You know, the first three are pretty easily solved by kind of like that typical chat, that typical task checklist. But the fourth, Rick realized, was a lot more nebulous and very similar to the sloped floor example in the, in the builder's example. And the solution, yeah, God damn it, yeah, it's the wisdom of crowds, baby. Have everyone stop and talk to each other and address as a team the critical issues. And this seems so fucking simple on the surface, but it represents a significant departure from the ways operations are typically performed. I mean, typically surgery has been regarded as an individual performance. The doctor casts off his white coat and dances the ballet Swan Lake while the nurses and anyone who is honored enough to witness the events has tears of admiration dripping down their utterly mundane non-doctor faces. But we could see how this could be an issue. Even if the surgeon's not overtly a dick, you know, these type of failures come more from like that cascading of dumbass opinions where the surgeon makes a mistake but no one's really comfortable asking questions because they just watched him do fucking a triple pirouette and they're like god damn it you know so it ends up it's not the wisdom of crowds it's one genius and 20 servants so how do we get this type of teamwork you know, Dr. G tells a very moving story. You're going to have to do the technique of buy the fucking book about when he and some of his doctor friends and nurses, they, uh, they did good teamwork and saved an old man. And he says, suppose this was luck, you know, the, the good teamwork. But suppose it also wasn't luck. That was what the checklist from Toronto, Hopkins, Kaiser raised as a possibility. Their insistence that the team talk to each other prior to the operation, even for a minute, created that sense of teamwork. So was another step that was quite unusual. Surgical staff were supposed to stop and make every and make sure everyone knew each other's names. In solving the the who problem, so the you know fix surgery around the whole fucking world, the results were enticing. You know, nothing had really ever shown an increase in surgical performance. But as they're digging into this, these three separate weird-ass checklists appeared to do just that. Because as they're relaying this, you know, telling stories of how these checklists actually worked. You know, one of these checklists caught surgeons about to accidentally cut someone open a lot when all he needed to do was, I don't know, fucking put a camera in his ass or something like that. Um, it also caught a potentially lethal combination of drugs so you know we're going to give them this thing to go to sleep and this thing to not feel pain and you're actually going to accidentally almost make them go to the eternal sleep so none none of these though were you know were like fully complete enough for this you know two-day conference to, to be like this is what we're going to do but by the end of the conference you know they'd agreed on some next steps of, of having a safe surgery checklist like let's let's test that and we've all these other things that we could do but you know we ain't got any money everybody's fucking crazy there's you know this is supposed to help surgery in like i don't know 180 countries working with what we got let's check a safe surgery checklist so 
they basically set up a checklist that was kind of a combination of those. Apparently, there was three people who shared stories about how their hospital did a checklist, whatever. But um, it had three pause points. So that's what they're called, apparently, in aviation. Uh, so those, those are points where the team must stop and run through a series of checks before moving forwards. So prior to anesthesia. So like, okay, is this the right person? Okay, what are we doing? Okay, are we uh, anesthesiologist? Are you are you high? Yes. Oh, god damn it! Come back later. Uh, one after the patient is anesthetized, so when they're asleep, but before you cut. So now you're like, okay, well, which leg? What's the operation? All that type of shit. And then one before they leave. And so, you know, they, they divvied up all the things that they needed to check for. So allergies, you know, making sure you're cutting off the right leg, whatever. And then decided which pause point they were going to put those tasks. But, you know, it's kind of like if you go to, growing up, I, you know, it was part of church and you go to mission trip and you fucking come back and you're like, yes, I want to have two girlfriends and I love going to church. And then like you go to school for a couple days and you're like, oh, Never mind. Um, so, you know, Dr. G comes back and he's fired up. And so he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to we're going to test this shit out of my hospital first. And so he gets some nurses who are like, you know, nice. And you know, Dr. G is one of those one of those immortal doctors. that's like, you know, kind to the lesser beings. And so, you know, they're just kind of rolling their eyes at him. And so day one, they're, they're really giving a good effort and they're trying it. But like. Within five hours, he's like, fuck this checklist. God damn it. And they give up. And he's like, I could have now had two Porsches. I'm wasting my fucking time. He says, after the failure of my first checklist, I did what I should have done the first time. I went to the library. (laughs) You're old. And pulled out a few articles on how airplane checklists are made. Because he was thinking... In surgery, minutes matter, but so too in aviation. If they had figured it out, God damn it, why can't I figure it out? And he found some good articles. And in one of those articles, he found a name. So Dr. G, having no fear of anybody, he cold called this bitch Boorman, whose name was in the article. He was a veteran pilot, Mr. Boorman, has spent 20 years developing checklists for Boeing. Okay, respect. He is one of the keepers of what Boeing calls their flight philosophy. So when you fly a Boeing airplane, apparently there's a there's a theory that governs how the pilot, co-pilot, and crew fly the plane. You know, what to do manually, what should computers do, and he's studied thousands of crashes and made a science out of stopping human error. And so Dr. G is thinking, okay, I'm, I just got done with the mission trip. I was convinced that I was going to start my own damn religion. And then on day one, I get punched in the fucking face and I don't even have two girlfriends. I don't even have one. I have no girlfriends. Boorman, please help me figure out a checklist that works for damn medicine. So he meets up in person. Boorman showed me the aviation handbook. It was 200 pages long, spiral bound with numerous yellow tabs. And initially, Dr. G's like, I'm the smartest person alive, and I 
I couldn't manage that. How could anybody manage 200 pages? But then he realized it isn't one checklist, but lots of them. Each one was remarkably brief, usually just a few lines in easy-to-read font, and each applies to a different scenario. Taken together, they cover a vast array of airplane situations. And this is interesting. The first three pages of the checklist were like normal shit. So like starting the plane, taking the brakes off, cleaning the plane, whatever. But the remaining 200 pages were non-normal checklists. So there's smoke in the cockpit, different warning lights, engine failure, a bunch of others. Uh, One example is in an old model of a Boeing plane, you know, if there's a, if a latch broke on a cargo door and you were at the, the certain pressure, you know, you were, you were 30 seconds away from the pop can effect. So think, think you open a can of, you know, Coke Zero and you pop, okay? Except instead of a nice, delicious can of Coke, nine people get sucked out of the damn sky. And then, you know, you have to equalize cabin pressure or everybody's going to get fucking sucked out. And so all of a sudden you're at such a high altitude that, you know, everybody's like turning blue and not getting oxygen and freezing to death. So the solution, if a latch goes out, you know, before pop can death is slowly descend to 8,000 feet and then depressurize the cabin. That avoids the pop can and everybody turning blue. The door forward checklist, that's what it's called. Door forward, that's a little error. It spells out these steps. And Boorman stressed how carefully it was designed to help the crew in an emergency. So that's a key point here. It's not, you know, it's it's not the tactical fucking thing that works on the range. Like, let me hop, skip, jump over here and do a double tap to the face. Woo! It's like, again, triple EpiPen to the neck kicked in the nuts it's dark and there might or might actually be a monster in the fucking house how do you shoot then and there are good checklists and bad borman explained you know bad checklists are too long they're vague they're hard to use good checklists on the other hand are precise they're efficient to the point shoot them in the eyes easy to use don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes easy to use even in the most difficult of situations they provide reminders of the most critical steps. The 20% sun. And Dr. G, he was trying to figure out, okay, so I get it, man. Like, I'm bought in, but like, we tried to use checklists and I gave up after five hours. Why do pilots use these? Why don't they just do what he did in the operating room? He's like, nah, bitch, it's too complicated. Pilots, nonetheless, turn to their checklist for two reasons. One, they're trained to. They learn from the beginning of flight school that their memory and judgment are unreliable and that their lives depend on recognizing that fact. Second, it's because they fucking work face to face with the abyss. These pilots with balls of goddamn steel turn to checklists again and again. Dr. G talks about how listening to the recording of the disaster of the pop can flight so like nine people just got fucking sucked out in the sky one flight attendant was only saved when one guy grabbed her ankle and i i assume that they got married afterwards because like i mean you gotta marry somebody if you do that to them um you know it's the rules uh, but so chaos 
but you can hear how willing the pilots are to use the checklist. You know, they fucking thought a bomb had gone off. They didn't know what happened, but nonetheless, that light popped up and they needed to shut off the damaged engine. They noticed notify air traffic control. They descended to a safe altitude. They needed to figure out what the fuck was going on. So what did they do? They grabbed the checklist. The captain said, you want me to read the checklist? The flight engineer said, yep, I'm ready when you are ready. Then they fucking followed it to safety. Like little Lassie coming home after a long day of fornicating with other dogs. They made it home, little buddy. They made it home. And when you're, when you're making a checklist, you need to think through multiple key decisions. You know, what's the pause point? Is it obvious, like a warning light goes on, pause, do the checklist? Or is it, you know, do you define it? Uh, you know, before anesthesia, we pause. You must decide if it's a do-confirm checklist or a read-do checklist. So do-confirm is like uh, the four steps of getting into a car are open the door, sit down, put seatbelt on, hands on the wheel. So you do those and then you verbally confirm them. That's a stupid example, but that's what that is. Read do is you have someone else who says, open the door, you open the door. Sit in the seat, you sit in the seat. You put on your seatbelt, you put on your seatbelt. You get it. A rule and, and a rule of thumb is that you know you want to keep it between five to nine items and focus on what Borman calls the killer items. You know, the important fucking steps that if they're skipped have a huge impact on the outcome. You know, if you're the anesthesiologist and you transpose the numbers, you can you get a little mental dyslexia that day. You know, you do instead of 16, you do 61 grams of potassium. Little Billy's fucking dead. You just did lethal injection. But Borman was adamant about one point. No matter how carefully your checklist is created, no matter how much thought you put into it, your checklist has to be tested in the real world. And this is so true. You know, our, our marketing department at an old job put together some qualifying questionnaire that I was supposed to ask fucking new cl like prospective clients. And uh, luckily, like my boss was super cool and we had a good relationship and she knew that I was like always wanting to do the right thing. And I like, I wanted the same thing as her. And so she, she suggested this checklist and I came back and I was like, no, but it was like seven different things. Like get long detailed answers about their current technology stack. It's like, okay, listen up. I called this person because they submitted a request because they thought we were Microsoft and I've got like six seconds to book a fucking meeting. <laughs> no. And so, you know, you got to test it in the real world. Now, Dr. G says, yeah, that's not easy to do in surgery. He pointed out. But then Borman says, not in aviation either, he countered. God damn it. This guy should have been a doctor. Good fucking point. That's why they have flight simulators, Borman said. And he offered to show Dr. G one. Dr. G says, I try not to seem like an excited kid who got offered the chance to see the cockpit. I said, sure, that sounds fine. Now, quick side tangent. Like, growing up, uh, I lived in korea like south korea and belgium and so you know from the as early as i can remember i've been on planes and so we'd fly a lot and like you know my dad would get cool vacation time and so like we would go to thailand on vacation so like i fucking flew so much so i got so desensitized to planes like i gave zero fucks about planes and i remember one time i think it was maybe in belgium 
um, one pilot, you know, it was like a younger pilot, and, and he was, you know, you could tell he had the dream since he was born, uh, and since he decided he, you know, since he decided he wanted to be a pilot, he had this dream of a little kid coming up to him and being so excited to see him in his uniform and being like, can you show me how to fly the plane? And then he sits him on his knee and he teaches him how to fucking fly the plane. So he was super forceful. Oh, you want to see the controls and how I fly the plane? And I'm like, no, dude, I'm seven. You're a giant. And I've been on more planes than you. Get away from me. I don't know, maybe he was one of them pedophiles, but anyways, Dr. G did not feel like that, and instead he was very excited for the flight simulator. Now, obviously Dr. G immediately took to flying like only a doctor could, and within 30 seconds he ran through all the tests. But the crazy thing is, this was by design. These checklists were supposed to be fast. They were painstakingly timed and retimed and shortened and optimized all before anyone ever flew a second. And as Dr. G got the, the you know fictional plane in the air, Borman staged an emergency and uh, Dr. G had to follow the checklist. There were, however, all types of things the checklist hadn't specified, notifying emergency control, briefing the flight attendants, etc. But Boorman says the emissions were intentional. Although these steps are critical, experience shows that professional pilots virtually never fail to do these. So they didn't need to be on the checklist. In fact, Boorman argued they shouldn't be. So, you know, when you're thinking about it, checklists actually aren't these complex step-by-step guides. Instead, they're quick tools to buttress the skills of expert professionals and make sure nobody done fucks up. So then Dr. G again tells a, a rousing, not a rousing, a rousing story about this plane that started crashing and no one knew why. And it turned out that there was ice in the fuel and you know the actual solution when like when they actually looked at it and the you know the, the, whatever the actual solution was to to quickly idle the engine and allow melting and so you know there's this horrible disaster and they guessed that hey if if this weird shit happens because this this plane had like flown over the arctic and you know it's supposed to not be a problem but if this happens if these specific symptoms happen do this and so they incorporated it into into the you know Boeing's checklist that got put into every single plane and um, uh, the you know a couple years later, the disaster almost happened again. But the co- the pilot and co-pilot they turned to that checklist. They knew what to do. They got out the checklist and followed the lessons it offered. And because they did that, they idled the engine. The engine recovered, and 247 people were saved. It went so smoothly, the passengers didn't even notice. This. It seemed to Dr. G was something to hope for in surgery. Now, since Dr. G's never lost anything in his life, he's not ready to give up the test. When he got back to Boston, he tried to make his checklist not suck. He took the lessons from aviation and adopted mostly do confirm rather than redo checks. So, you know, the doctor does his normal stuff, but then he's like, okay, did I check the pulse? Did I 
you know did i put them in you know in one of the the gowns did i look at their eyes i don't know but you know did i do all the normal shit probably a little bit faster than the the read do you know where you have a nurse read off what to do then you do it but um you know maybe a little bit more error prone but you're still checking it and so you know they did that and the checklist emerged better faster next we tested it out in a simulator otherwise known as the the conference room next to his hallway dr g says we had an assistant lie on the table they cried tears of joy at being given this much attention by a doctor i tried to explain it it was just an experiment and they actually didn't mean anything to me but i didn't have the heart to correct this poor poor soul uh what we hit problems as soon as we started to do it in real life like who's supposed to start you know it takes someone being a little bit assertive and getting control of the operating room so you know, Dr. G's like, well, I know some assertive people. It's called surgeons. But that got kind of poo-pooed because the nurses were like, hey, in the aviation world, you know, the co-pilot starts because the pilot's too distracted and, and liable to skip steps. They next try to figure out, do they need to make check marks? They decided no. You know, this isn't a rep- record-keeping procedure. This is just designed to make everything better. Um, you know, they decided they wanted three pause points before anesthesia, before cutting and before leaving the OR. And they wanted each step to take less than 60 seconds. So they timed everything. They tweaked, they tweaked, they removed the non-killer steps. And, you know, Dr. G acknowledges that this proved to be the most difficult part because, you know, there's this inherent tension between brevity. So how, you know, quickly can you go through it and effectiveness? The final WHO safe surgery checklist spelled out 19 checks in all. Seven before anesthesia, seven after, and then math before you wheel the patient out. Operations obviously require more steps than 19. But like builders, we tried to encompass the simple to the complex with several specific checks to make sure stupid stuff isn't missed. So like, what leg? But the question then became, would it work? Would it actually make a measurable difference in reducing patient harm? That was the question. So, you know, who decided to roll out the safe surgery checklist in eight hospitals around the world? You know, they, they, they put out applications, you know, hey, send in your application if you want this damn checklist. And they found uh, eight hospitals who were willing, some in rich countries, some in poor countries. But that was by design because this thing had to apply to everybody. And, and finally, they got it narrowed down, and all. And then the hospitals started implementing Dr. G's two-minute, 19-step surgery checklist. And Dr. G visited all the eight sites and just commented that shit was so different. You know, in Tanzania, they were like the hospital was like 200 miles away from anything, and the four anesthesiologists they didn't even have college degrees. They were just like, "Hey, has anybody done a lot of drugs?" And, this, and they're like yeah you're hired in india they did good medicine but they did 10 times the volume of united states hospitals in worse conditions in england they drank some tea whatever but you know there was some resistance to the checklist but it was mostly adopted you know the the nurses were all super pumped about the name part like because you know imagine that you know you're a nurse but you don't ever get introduced to the doctor so like there's that weird human thing where you're like well i don't want to be a bitch 
But if you get introduced to him, like, hey, I'm Dr. G. I'm here. I'm excited to work with you. You know, if, if, if I start fucking up, I want you to tell me. Think of how much easier it is to just tell the doctor. And I will say, Dr. G points out that, you know, the surgeons were kind of like, listen, these nurses can either call me God or doctor, but neither of which requires me to know their name. But mostly, most people got on board. And after three months, Dr. G was super nervous. He's like, is this enough time? But it was time to look at the results. How much could come out after three months? But they were heartening. There were some good stories before they even crunched the numbers. You know, one surgeon who was a huge critic, I've been doing this for a hundred years. He almost did a knee replacement, but after looking through the checklist, it helped him realize that the hospital, they actually didn't have a knee the size that needed to be replaced. So he would have just cut off this dude's fucking leg. This dude instantly became a proponent. There was some other jabroni in, in Washington that Dr. G said liked it, whatever. But um, Dr. G had three helpers, and late one afternoon, they all came to see him. You've got to see this. We've got the results. And his helpers pulled out the results, and major complications for all the surgeries fell 36%, and deaths fell 47% after the introduction of the checklist. Infections fell by almost 50%. Imagine the magnitude of those results. I mean, that's like getting on creatine and instead of being like, you know, someone asks you, hey, how's, how's it taking the creatine? You're like, well, you know, it's, I think, I, I think I'm making some good gains. Instead of, instead of that, you gain 45 pounds of fucking muscle. Well, that's like going from being, being barely able to death metal scream to fucking sounding like Satan. Dr. G realizes, holy shit this thing is real and anonymous forms that the staff filled out said 80 percent of them had witnessed the checklist stop a complication then he asked the fucking closing question of closing questions if you were having an operation would you want the surgeons using the checklist a full 93 percent of people said yes we have an opportunity for us, not just in the field of medicine, but in virtually any endeavor. Even the most expert among us can gain from searching out the patterns of mistakes and failures and putting a few checks in place. Take the safe surgery checklist. If anyone discovered a drug that could cut down on surgery deaths by 50%, they'd be on every TV commercial from here to China. That's what happened with these complicated, fucking expensive robots who were supposed to revolutionize surgery, and they kind of helped. But this checklist, there's only modest adoption. A lot of hospitals are using it, or some variation. But he says, we doctors have a lot of work to do. It has arrived on our operating table, so the checklist, not from surgeons, but from outside officials finger-wagging pencil pushers who are many times regarded as the enemy. So what do we do? Even if, uh, what, what if the surgeons just, what if they just check the box? You know, they just go through the shit because they're forced to. Is that good enough? Well, not exactly, Dr. G says. Because embracing a culture of discipline, teamwork, and accountability is key. 
You know, this, this two-minute checklist is just the start. If we recognize the mind-blowing benefits, you know, we could adopt specialized checks for all types of operations. We could even devise emergency checklists for non-routine things, just like aviation has. But even outside of surgery, think of all the high-stakes things that doctors do. Treating chest pains, cancer screenings, echocardiograms, seizures, kidney failures, all involve risk, uncertainty, and complexity, and therefore, steps that are worth committing to a checklist and testing in routine care. Good checklists could become as important to the medical profession as good stethoscopes. Now, I've said the word checklist a lot, so if you were doing the drinking game, you're dead. But we need to change attitudes. We're leaving the wild and crazy test pilot world in favor of a system that anybody who possesses can fly the plane. And it's true well beyond medicine. The opportunity is evident in many fields and so is the resistance. I mean, think of the most successful business in American history or one of them, McDonald's. You know, every time I go to McDonald's, I fucking feel proud to be an American because they can get, <laughs> the business model so good that they can get drug-addicted high school dropouts to produce food faster, cheaper, and more delicious than anything I could ever make? I mean, have you ever had one of them fish fillets? So good. And what is the franchise model besides a giant list? This is how we do things. Checklists. But the world doesn't like them. They can be a real pain. They're not much fun. But I don't think the real issue here is laziness. It somehow feels beneath us to use a checklist. An embarrassment. It runs counter to how the truly great among us handle pressure. They fly with the eagles. They soar. They do not have protocols or checklists. But perhaps it's time to update our damn ideas of what success looks like. Because that same day, that the WHO safe surgery checklist went live on another part of the world, a pilot hit a flock of geese and had to crash their plane in the Hudson River. Hailed as a hero, he kept saying, this is a victory of the crew, all of us, of procedure. But we as the public, we didn't want to hear it. We kept reaching for an answer. You know, that pilot, he used to fly gliders in the Air Force Academy, that must be it. We didn't realize that this was a victory of systems, of checklists. That day, the two pilots, both super experienced, never had flown together though, they started the flight. They adhered to strict discipline. You know, the kind you might not expect other fields to adhere to. They ran through their checklists. They made sure they introduced themselves to the crew and the other captain. They held a quick huddle on what they would do if something bad happens. That discipline and a couple extra minutes transformed them from a collective, a collection of individuals into a team. Because I don't, I don't think we recognize how easy it would have been for Sullenberger, that's the captain, to blow off those steps. You know, the crew had over 150 years of experience flying. 150 fucking years of running through the checklist without any of them even coming close to an airplane accident. I think about that. The checklist is almost serving as that like barbell strategy 
Like, even though we've never had a fire, we still have insurance on our house. You know, even though we've never needed to dip into our boring emergency fund, we know that having it removes fragility. But why did they do it? Because they know that over the great Monte Carlo simulation of life, doing the checklist versus not can be huge. Checklists get the dumb stuff out of the way. The routines your brain shouldn't have to occupy itself with. You know, are we cleared to take off? Did the patient get the antibiotics on time? For example, one engine failure checklist, the first item on the list is fly the airplane <laughs> because pilots become so desperate. You know, they're trying to restart the airplane. They're so crushed by the cognitive load. They forget their most basic duty, fly the airplane, and they just like, just don't hold the controls. This isn't rigidity. This is making sure everyone has a shot at survival. Because on that fateful day, about 90 seconds after takeoff, US Airways Flight 1549 hit a flock of geese, and the sound of birds hitting the plane was loud enough it could be heard on the plane's voice recorder. And, you know, planes hit, the, planes hit birds all the time, but, like, typically don't hit a giant fucking flock of geese, and it goes in both engines. Because Canadian geese are big as fuck, and each engine had three of them inside. And those engines are designed to shut down after, you know, hitting something the size of a fucking goose. So the engine shut off 90 seconds after takeoff. When that, hit, when that happened, Sullenberger made two key decisions. Take over flying from his co-pilot and land in the Hudson. So Sullenberger had more experience. He just finished some key training and he just jumped into action. But they'd also discussed this in their little huddle. He can be heard on the recorder saying, my aircraft, as he puts his hands on the controls. Your aircraft, the co-pilot can be heard responding. There's no discussion. Solenberger would look for the nearest place to land. Skiles, so the co-pilot, would go to the engine failure checklist and see if he could restart the engine somehow. They only had three and a half minutes of glide left, and Skiles needed to try and restart the engines, and if that didn't work, do all the procedures for a ditch and evacuation. So as he's, as he's thinking through that mental calculus, he decided to focus almost all his attention on restarting the engines and he actually managed, he managed a complete restart attempt on both engines. Some, something difficult to replicate, even in a simulation. Once that turned out, it was not gonna, not gonna happen. Uh, he jumped into the, you know, the, the second procedure, which was the ditch and evacuation. So they crashed and all the flight attendants followed procedure even though two out of the four exits were fucked. So think about that. Like, that'd be so easy to fall into like, oh my God, my plan. Like, oh, the exits, what do you do with the exits? But nope, they said, okay, well, you know, these two exits are broken, so we're going to go to these two. And within minutes, everybody got out to safety. So who was the hero? No doubt, there was some amazing flying. And luck played a role. But above all, the crew showed an ability to adhere to vital procedures even in the midst of chaos and remain calm under pressure. They recognized when they needed to improvise and when they did not. They understood how to function in a complex and dire situation. This is what was so unusual. This is what it means to be a hero in the modern era. These are the rare qualities that are needed in the larger world. You know, all professions have a code of conduct. 
be selfless, be good, blah, blah, blah. Aviation has added a fourth. Discipline. Discipline in following prudent procedure and in working with others. Discipline's hard. Harder than trustworthiness or being a good person or all those other bullshit things that professionals like to sing about. You know, we're, we are built for novelty and excitement, for firing machine guns in the air while riding a camel in the nude, not for detail. Discipline's something we have to work at. In all fields, we're plagued by failures, by missed subtleties, overlooked knowledge, and outright errors. For the most part, we have imagined that nothing can really be done except for trying harder. But the aviation industry took it a step further. They recognized that we are all human, all fallible, and chose to accept their fallibilities. They recognize the power and simplicity of a checklist. Drink, and so can we. In the complexity of the world, we must. There's no choice. We see the same balls being dropped over and over. We see the costs. It's time for discipline. It's time for a checklist. Because as the Lord Jocko has been known to say, if we have the discipline to stick to the checklist, we have the freedom to avoid mistakes. We have the freedom to perform better, to be organized even if our natural state is an actual dumpster fire. The freedom to look up, to look out, to focus on the important shit, not the mundane little checks. And ultimately, we have the freedom of becoming a goddamn Kusemono. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties. Is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.